Hello and welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every week, starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema. Uh, this week is 1920. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I'm a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I'm Glenn Covell, the other host, and I'm a filmmaker. And this week on One Week, One Year, we are... The talking about the movie one week by buster keaton yeah (laughs) we've been anticipating this movie specifically because of the title for the entire time yeah we uh but but that's not how we start the podcast we don't we don't jump right in we don't we don't uh we don't give you we don't we don't give you the content right away first off we gotta we gotta just uh bring us in usher us in to another another episode so glenn how how are th- how have things been going how, how's what's going on <laughs> uh pretty good um not a lot is new i guess for me um i don't know i'm just working writing some stuff seeing some movies business as usual conducting business uh there you go i uh, have also been conducting business. I uh, am kind of settling in as a projection booth lead at the C Film Center uh, in Denver, and um, but I also am a little zonked from doing uh, two fifteen-hour drives in uh, the span of a weekend. That'll do it. That'll do it for me. Um, but. I'm here, and it's great to be getting our way into the 1920s. Yeah, I'm excited about that big, uh, big decade. Yes, for movies. yes, a big famous decade where many famous big silent films came out. We gotta, we gotta talk about all of them. Uh, but before we do, we are gonna give ourselves a little context for the year 1920. I'm sure you've never heard of 1920 before. So we're going to tell you about the news of the year. So take it away, Glenn. The news of the year, 1920. The Treaty of Versailles takes effect, putting an official close to the Great War. But get your celebrations in quickly, because one week later, prohibition begins in the United States, ending the legal sale of alcohol. In the wake of the Versailles Treaty, tensions grow in Weimar, Germany. Out of the paramilitary Freikorps is founded the Nazi Party. A tornado outbreak sweeps the Midwest. Over 37 tornadoes in one day. Pope Benedict XV officially adds Joan of Arc to the canon of Catholic saints. The Soviet Red Army's campaign of expansion includes invasions in Poland, Ukraine, and Georgia. No more shenanigans, says the U.S. Post Office. An official ban on sending children through the mail is enacted. Looks like little Billy will need a train ticket this time. The first official radio station enters the airwaves above Detroit, and Americans can now listen on their home Westinghouse radio sets, $10 apiece. The 19th Amendment is ratified, granting women the right to vote in their first U.S. election in 1920. Mahatma Gandhi begins his non-cooperation movement to begin Indian independence from the British Empire. America's sweetheart, Mary Pickford, and everybody's hero, Douglas Fairbanks, marry, becoming Hollywood's first super couple. Thank you, Glenn. 
And that is a small smattering of the things that happened in 1920. A lot of wars. A lot of, lot of, uh... Yeah. We, we don't want to talk about all that. A lot of riots, a lot of wars, a lot of awful, terrible things. <laughs> We, we 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 when we write these we give you a little bit a little taste of all of the horrific stuff that happens right. in a year but we don't want to bum you out right at the beginning there's of the so show. many <laughs> maybe not the best time for the world but pretty good year for movies yes i maybe one of the best we've covered i think so too i yeah. i was quite impressed uh by 1920 i mean I guess we could talk about some broad stuff in a way in that, like, I, um, I feel like I have... They're called women, Chris, okay? And they have the right to vote. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I-, I feel like I have noticed a kind of, like, formal leap in confidence and, and just, like, uh, I don't know, like, ability to, um, hold your attention and be tight and be... Uh, like visually interesting uh like already in the movies of 1920 i, mm-hmm. I mean the the years 1919 and 1920 there's nothing necessarily different about like one decade or another but already it feels like we are looking at much more confident and modern filmmaking compared to the 1910s yeah for sure it does kind of feel like they've filmmakers in general have kind of started to figure out a lot of the the bare bones basics that was still kind of being figured out in the 1910s and now they can they're moving on to more adventurous exciting like yeah the movies feel definitely more confident or are starting to anyway well uh we'll uh we'll start talking about these movies and why don't we uh begin with our first segment one week one reel or... which of course is an ironic name because we now do the show every other week and these movies are both two reels. So it should be called two weeks, two reels. Too furious, too, uh, <laughs> too, two weeks, two, two reels, too furious. <laughs> and I think I can't think of anything better to start off with than one week, one week by Buster Keaton. It's been, one week. it has, I mean, it's been more than that for us, but uh, yeah, it's it's the 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 titular film of our entire show. Yes, we named our entire show after this one short that neither <laughs> of us had seen. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's it seems we were going to watch this anyway because it's a notable short film from this year. But I think it's mm-hmm. funny that it just happens to contain half of the title of this show. Yeah, uh, this is a buster keaton joint uh it's uh him striking out on his own uh after uh, parting ways with fatty arbuckle yeah uh he this this is this is a lot of fun i think um it's uh the basic idea is that he has just gotten married to alas uh and he is gifted a plot of land and a ikea style build your own <laughs> home uh in in a kit uh and there is a jealous guy at the wedding who uh got passed over uh for for buster and uh so he reorders he, he draws he takes a little piece of uh he takes a paintbrush and he reorders 
all of the boxes so that the, instead of building the house properly, they build a wacky house Whoa. where things are lopsided and falling in strange ways and sagging and exploding. Uh, and there is a lot of um, there is a lot of construction based humor in this, and there is a lot mm-hmm. of uh, just zany house based humor in this yeah what, you know, what zany zany house humor yeah like what jokes can you ring out of uh <laughs> what jokes can you ring out of a strange house yeah um the this movie takes place over one week hence the title each day is kind of a separate scene starting with uh like a close-up shot of a calendar showing the day um and yeah, it starts with the wedding and then each day is sort of like building a different part of the house or sort of a, a different kind of wacky set piece having to do with this this zany house that is being built. Definitely some some like classic Buster Keaton gags in this. This has the not the first and not the only instance of but maybe one of his most famous gags, which is the wall falling and him standing in the window. And so the wall like falls around him. Right. Though there is like the most iconic Buster Keaton shot of like a wall falling on him that's not from this movie. That's not from this movie. The sort of most famous version of that stunt is from a later movie. And also I looked it up and this that same stunt is also in a, a Keaton Arbuckle short called Backstage. Um, And that one, the wall falls around uh roscoe arbuckle though not buster keaton i mean it's a much smaller wall i think the wall gets bigger each time um but like this gag is still used in things like it's in one of the jackass movies it's in arrested development it's in so many things i mean explicitly as a buster keaton reference i think yeah but i think it's funny that it's like it's it's too good not to just keep reusing right (laughs) Um, cause it is funny and it's, it's also the sort of thing where it's like, it is, it's always kind of impressive just to look at because it's usually a real wall that is very big and heavy. Yeah. I mean, Buster Keaton and, uh, uh the other short we'll be talking about is a Harold Lloyd short. And these people are, uh, these people are like proto jackass basically. Like yeah. they are. Uh, they would fit right in with with Johnny Knoxville because <laughs> they are just like trying to do like the the craziest most like daring uh dumb stuff possible uh just to get it on film um and uh you know some of the stuff in this movie I think probably the most painful thing uh in this movie was uh a sort of uh proto Looney Tunes gag where uh he has a piece of wood that he is sawing uh, and he's hanging (laughs) off the edge of the wood is like hanging like four feet off the edge of, of, of the side of the building. And so he's trying to saw the wood, but he's on the outside of the wood. So when he finishes sawing it, he falls down and it's just like a story, you know, but like he just allows himself to fall onto the ground as he, (laughs) as he saws the wood off, you know? Yeah. Um, I think one of the gags in this, he did actually like 
pretty significantly injure himself in. It's the one where he kind of, there's a, a door on the second story of the house that just opens out into nothing. And he like runs through it and kind of falls into, like falls to the ground, but like through a kind of like soft, I don't know, like a tarp or something. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what went wrong in that. I don't know. It seems like it went correctly and that he falls uh, like, you know, 12 feet or something like that. 15 feet to the ground. Um, but I read that he did actually injure himself doing that. There's uh, there's another great gag toward the end of the movie using that door again where there's a guy like running toward him. And so he opens the door and lets the guy yeah. out. And then he the guy runs out the door and then keeps his momentum as he just like flies like 15 feet ver- like horizontally and then falls down vertically so he just falls out runs through the air and then picks up and then r- continues running <laughs> as he hits the ground it's so good like the way that this this short plays with physics um yeah there's so much there's so much like weight and like stretching and bending and spinning um there's a point where the entire house is uh uh getting uh hit by a a windstorm basically and it's spinning on its axis yeah like on its center axis like around in circles so everybody inside the house is like flying to the edge and uh buster does this great thing of like running trying to get to the front door and he is like running up the porch but the porch is like moving out from under him it's like a really amazing rig that must have been like super expensive so i understand like them you know trying to get like ring every gag they could out of this thing because like it's a really elaborate prop that they built this house yeah i mean it's a full-size house i imagine it's probably empty for the exterior shots of it but it's like they built this wacky house full-size on like a spinning platform. So that's one thing that I think is really kind of fun and impressive about these early like slapstick comedies is that like there was, when you see something weird happen, it's like, no, they just did that. (laughs) Yeah. Something, I mean, something that I was thinking about with this movie is that uh, probably the idea for, you know, pulling a comedy short out of a house itself, out of a construction itself is probably because they were like, they were you know building all of these sets for the sake of all of their movies, and and the sets were just like functional. And then they probably had this thought of, why don't we make the set itself like the source of the comedy? Mm. Yeah, um, and and so they do a lot with it, I, and like it's the kind of thing that I don't know. I feel like it's the kind of thing that couldn't get made nowadays because like nobody has the money to spend on something so goofy Uh, (laughs) and like they wouldn't spend any money on something that goofy. And if they were going to spend money on something like that, they do it in a way that wasn't as like practical and like real Mm -hmm. touchable slash expensive. Um, So, yeah, yeah, I think it's a really remarkable short. Um, I did read that. Uh, this is actually kind of a parody of a real, I think Ford instructional film, like telling you how to build like prefabricated houses. Huh. Down to like that. It starts with a wedding and like, it's like a pretty, I haven't found the original thing that it's supposed to be a parody of, 
that I mean, it doesn't read as such at all now because like instructional films about building prefab houses aren't really a thing that I'm familiar with. <laughs> On but YouTube, I, maybe. Um, but I thought that was kind of interesting that it's like this was apparently like a, a pretty like direct parody of a of a an actual thing. It's like uh, I heard some people talking about. Uh steamboat willie and Mm -hmm. and how it's like yeah it's this uh it's this a lot of people don't realize this but it's a parody of this really obscure buster keaton movie called steamboat bill jr which like i had never kind of made the connection that steamboat willie was a was like a reference slash parody of buster keaton Mm. uh but uh (laughs) calling steamboat bill jr uh one of the more famous silent films uh yeah uh like obscure (laughs) you know is is kind of ridiculous well, I mean, I guess in in the grand pantheon of of movies, I guess it's more obscure than some other things. But yeah, it's like one of Buster Keaton's more famous movies. So just goes to show you people people don't know the silent era as well, you know. And that's what we're here to fix. Exactly. Um, this movie ends on an absolute showstopper joke slash stunt of a train destroys the house. Which, oh. again, is like, nope, they just built a house and put it in front of a train and had a train drive through it. And it <laughs> it looks insane because it's just a real thing that they filmed. The lead up to that gag is so funny, though, because they're expecting the train to, like, the, the, the house, they're driving it from one lot to another. They're pulling it on a car. Right. And it gets stuck on the train tracks. And they are expecting it. But, you know, they're like, oh, God, the train's coming. It's going to smash through the house. And you, can, you can see the train coming in the background. Yeah. <laughs> and then the the train turns out to be on a different track behind the house and it passes by and everyone's like, oh, good, it's fine. We we're safe. And then a different train going the other direction comes by and destroys the house completely. <laughs> it's so good. It's such a good subversion. I I yeah. laughed real hard at that. Um, Yeah, just such a good joke. It's timed perfectly. Um, Yeah, it's good. Good movie. <laughs> There's a, a kind of a, a scene that stuck out to me in this. Um, there's a, a very kind of cheeky scene with um, Sybil Seeley, who plays, she's credited as The Bride. Um, Uma Thurman. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, where she's in, in the tub bathing, and she kind of reaches out to get a bar of soap that's on the floor. And it's like, oh, are we going to see some naughty bits? And then a hand reaches out and, like, Covers, behind the camera <laughs> yeah like covers the camera and then like goes away and he's back in the tub um which is a very a very meta joke yeah but have, have you seen um uh have you seen sherlock jr not all the way through so like i wonder if, if this is like this kind of meta humor this meta level filmmaking humor is something that buster keaton does because yeah. there are like there's a scene in Steamboat or uh, in Sherlock Jr. where they're going to see a movie and there are all of these gags related to like him being able to like walk in and out of the movie screen that is yeah, depicted right, yeah. on the screen. Um, and this kind of reminded me of that. Like this, like it, it's reminding you that you're watching a movie for a second as mm-hmm. if like the guy, co- the guy, the cameraman just like covers the camera for a second <laughs> Uh, while like, she's no, naked. And no, no, like, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. No nudity here. 
And then she like acknowledges the camera too. She's like, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Buster Keaton truly was the original Deadpool. <laughs> but yeah. Good film. I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Um, we, uh, there's another movie that we'll talk about next week that we thought came out this year. And we realized after we watched it, that it didn't. Uh, so we, scrambled to put another film in and i think we were both pretty happy with this other one that we that we found uh which is yeah. the harold lloyd picture high and dizzy great loved it so much fun <laughs> both of these are very like wacky silly comedies i i really liked one week but i think high and dizzy i liked a little bit more because high and mm-hmm. dizzy is like i was really kind of blown away by how much i liked this one yeah, it's uh, uh, it's uh, the, the basic idea is for some reason it's kind of incidental that the uh, Harold Lloyd is playing a doctor. Uh, they get like a couple doctor gags in for like five minutes out of the thirty-five minute film. Yeah, uh, and uh, and then it quickly becomes irrelevant that he's a doctor because the main thing is that he's drunk. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh he encounters a colleague who is uh brewing some some of his or distilling some of his own liquor uh some hooch. And he's making some hooch in his office yeah. which is a very timely reference to uh the prohibition that had happened yeah it's like right away like presumably like months after this law was enacted they're making a, a goofy comedy about it and how people about like illegal drinking right but i mean how people like immediately just started making their own liquor like at home yeah yeah it's super interesting to see that depicted like you would i I had kind of thought that during prohibition all of this like speakeasy style stuff was like so much more hush hush and like clandestine than you would than something like a mainstream movie star like making something about Mm -hmm. you know um truly the pineapple express of its day (laughs) How many more of these jokes can we make? They get drunk, and uh, I guess the the hooch is starting to like explode. Um, it, it's it's boiling over, and so they've got to drink it all really fast. And they get ex- they get just extremely wasted. Uh, they walk out of the doctor's office and start kind of stumbling around the city, getting into hijinks related to being mm. drunk, uh, including Hi-jinks trying to. Yeah, including trying to act normal around a cop. Yeah. Um, uh, Especially by Charlie Chaplin, I feel like there has been a good amount of physical comedy of people being drunk in these movies. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that they have some new gags with this. Um, They they approach it in a unique way. Yeah. Also, just like so much of the physical comedy in this is like just perfect to me it's like it's so precise Mm. um like the timing of it and like everyone's kind of movements um i was definitely reminded of how uh jackie chan has talked about how like influenced he was by silent comedy and i think uh harold lloyd specifically Mm -hmm. and i think you can really see that in sort of like especially in like the drunken master movies and things like that where he's his movements are super loose but you can tell how precise they are because it's like the jokes and like comedy of it is so like perfectly dialed in. 
like, I don't know, there's just a bit where he, like, jumps up onto a counter and then is, like, proud of it and falls off. And it's, like, very, like, very simple things, but are just, like, so well, yeah, well done. Yeah, it's really funny. Um, yeah. It's always kind of difficult to describe these um, slapstick movies. On right, because the they're, they're so cause, visual. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a really cool, uh, like, double exposure shot to show someone's drunk eyesight of, like, double vision. And it's just mm. a shot of, like, Harold Lloyd walking down a hallway. But it's, like, it's just the same shot twice, but, like, slightly offset. So it's, like, Ugh. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so this sort of, I guess, like, second half, of, after he's kind of run afoul of the 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 coppers and things, um, he runs into this, uh, this woman who is, uh, suffers from sleepwalking. Or somnambulism, as some would say. Remember that word for later in the episode. <laughs> as somnambulists would say. Yeah. And uh, and so there's the sort of like big climax of this movie is she's sleepwalking like around the outside of a building, like along this like small ledge. Um, like 10 stories up or something. Yeah. And again, it's like for... At least one, there's one wide shot where it's like, she's definitely like up on a building very high up. And then, so he's super drunk and he goes out to like get her back in. And he doesn't, I guess, realize how high up he is. So he's like casually kind of like leaning off the edge (laughs) and like his like drunk footsteps. He's like almost stepping off, but not. And it's like, it's so crazy to think. So I don't think he actually shot this 10 stories up. I think there is some visual trickery going on where they built a fake wall on top of a roof Mm -hmm. and then used an actual background of a street that was like very far down. And if you frame it just right, you can see like the wall and the windows and then the actual street in the background. And so it looks like they're way up high when there actually is probably... A top of a roof or some kind of platform that if he did fall he wouldn't actually fall 10 stories but it feels like he would yes and so i was legitimately on the edge of my seat watching this movie it feels so actually dangerous what he's doing <laughs> and but yeah. very funny like i was like stressed but also laughing so much at the hijinks yeah yeah like he he does all of this stuff that like you know when you when you you really believe that he is standing so high in the air which is a testament to the filmmaking mm-hmm. and uh and so you're like oh my god i can't believe he is doing this because he <laughs> he's like you know leaning he's like he's stumbling around in such a chaotic way that you're like like he's he looks out of control he looks completely out of control and like he's going to just fall off at any second. And like you're gritting your teeth the entire time. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, as you were saying, he like his feet kind of go off the edge. He almost does like a wily e. coyote, like, uh, <laughs> you know, like the, 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 the gulf below him doesn't exist until he notices it kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's like just an amazing, stunning scene uh that i i i also was literally on the edge of my seat i was like my my heart rate was elevated watching that scene <laughs> yeah 
So I I don't know if that's how they did it with like building a set on the roof, but I do know that other later Harold Lloyd movies did that same kind of visual trick. So that's I I assume how they shot this because anything else would be actual insanity, but also people were kind of actually insane making these movies back then. So who knows? Um, uh, a sort of fun behind the scenes aspect of this is so at the end. Harold Lloyd, his character is is just the boy, and the the sleepwalking woman is just the girl, um, and of course they get married at the end, but they did in real life too. So that's oh. fun, yeah. Um, uh, I don't know, just a lot of a lot of my notes are just like good joke, <laughs> great bit, tiny dog <laughs> under a hat. I love that. <laughs> that was cute. Yeah. Um. I, I also appreciate how in both of these films, um, and this is along the lines of the, the kind of advancements in style that we've seen, mm-hmm. um, that they are not stricking, uh, sticking to that kind of like rigid, um, uh, rigid two-reeler pattern of mm-hmm. uh, 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 that that was a thing before, which is like basically two one-reel shorts that have a little bit right. to do with each other slammed together. Um, like these ones are actually like developing a sense of story more and a sense like they're they're letting them breathe a little more mm-hmm. so that you know the 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 Buster Keaton short which is about half an hour it's pretty much all one thing yeah um, and it versus like early Buster Keaton Arbuckle shorts where it's kind of like two 15 minute Things. right it's like the first reel they're in the kitchen and then the second reel they're in the dining room or like yeah first reel right. they're in like a, a butcher shop second reel they're in coney island like yeah first yeah. reel he's on a boat second reel he's in a restaurant right yeah um and and the high and dizzy uh has like it's kind of like a five minute slash 30 or thir- like 25 minute uh structure mm-hmm. um so they're not like they they feel less bound to um the 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 reels themselves mm-hmm. than yeah. these old than the older shorts did and i think it's letting them feel more naturalistic as stories yeah they still i guess kind of have a bit of that structure of like like high and dizzy is like all right start in the doctor's office bunch of doctor's office jokes all right gonna move into a different location a bunch of jokes here like yeah. it still has that thing of like we're gonna move to a new location and we're gonna wring every joke we can out of this place and then we're gonna move to a different place. <laughs> true, true. Although it, it reminds me, I was uh, I've been showing my partner for the first time some classic episodes of The Simpsons, and she was remarking on how like the way that the epi- the, the thing that the episode is mainly about is like in in a lot of classic episodes is completely like not like there's no way that you could guess what it is based on like the the way that the simpsons episode starts which is a really fun thing that the simpsons does i think you know but uh it it does feel kind of similar in a way yeah um and i'm sure like as we keep watching these we'll notice even more like and i'm always very much struck by like i've seen some silent comedy shorts but like i'm so much more used to seeing like looney tunes or the simpsons or like newer things that I've been exposed to more and I'm, I'm consistently struck with like how much of them are clearly kind of taking from 
like these kind of classic slapstick uh, silent films. Mm-hmm. Well, that I think wraps it up mm. for our, our little two real feet or a little two real uh, short. Indeed. Uh, and now it's time to move on to our feature presentation. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. Should we start with talking more about somnambulism? That's that's a good link. Let's do it. <laughs> We're going to talk about probably the most famous movie from 1920. Uh, the, the Big so, Dazzy, as as it were. Good Lord. Um, <laughs> and, and including one that um, uh, fans of Portlandia will be familiar with. There you go. Uh, which is The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Maybe one of the most famous just silent movies. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know how to gauge that, but like if you were to rank silent movies in in terms of famousness, probably the top three would be Caligari, Metropolis, and Trip to the Moon. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, this was uh, directed by Robert Vina, I think is how you say his name. And I mean, yeah, it's, it makes sense that this movie is super famous and, like, influential. Because it, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's visually one of the most striking movies ever made. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, They take this kind of... um, It almost feels like a descendant of um, Ernst Lubitsch's The Doll. Mm-hmm. Uh, with its kind of painterly or... or um, I don't know... Uh, theatrical backgrounds yeah uh, that are not super literal and just drives that all the way yeah to just say like what is the like zaniest strangest most gilliam-esque spaces that we can create uh yeah. by painting backgrounds onto uh onto like behind our actors yeah i mean th- this movie is like the definitive example of german expressionism in film German expressionism being also like a movement in, in just fine art in general. Mm. Like it was a big painting thing kind of leading up to this. But yeah. When, whenever people talk about German expressionism, they talk about this movie because it yep. is like maybe the most, I don't know. I haven't seen every, every German movie that like has expressionist sets, but this is the one that like really takes it really far. And it's, it does a great job with it yeah yeah um you, you watch do you watch this movie and then you go like ah i can see tim burton stole this shot i can see that yep. this, i see that this oh, is a nightmare oh this Christmas. is this is where tim burton got his entire deal from huh <laughs> it's even got like you know so the main character one of the main characters uh the the somnambulist he just looks like he should be in the cure yeah uh, he's, or, he's, or the smith he's, he's a goth boy yeah yeah <laughs> he's a skinny goth boy <laughs> yeah um yeah it's like i did think of the doll how like how theatrical that movie is and like uh student of prague had a bit of like a little bit of kind of expressionist stuff going on in it but neither of those go quite as hard as this does um as far as i know no other movie goes as hard as this movie <laughs> yeah i mean certainly not until like you get into like you know green screen digital backlot stuff where it's like people could kind of throw 
anything out onto the screen that they wanted to. But in terms of like building weird sets that don't that look like you're actively hallucinating them while you're watching it. Yeah. Yeah. Kind um, of Van Gogh esque. A lot of them a lot of them also like look 2D. They look like they should be like a painting that is behind the characters, but then they're actually like three dimensional spaces that mm-hmm. you can that are just shaped really weird and the characters can walk through them yeah. which is which really adds like a sense of place to the world yeah. and it also it isn't just like for the sake of being weird like this movie is about like losing touch with reality and like not really and like unreliable narration and like flashbacks and like it 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 uh the the wacky sets really do um have a very strong kind of narrative purpose in this, which I like. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, it'd been a minute since I've seen this. I wonder if like, we should start worrying about spoilers when we <laughs> like, like now that we're I don't talking know. about some this of these movie is movies. over a hundred years old. If you haven't seen it by now, get with it. I, a lot of people haven't seen Caligari and they want to. All right. And so I will go watch that, like, Caligari right now and then come back and listen to the rest of the episode. Yeah. Cause we're going to talk and, about the twist at the end. Yeah, and consider this your warning for every episode that we, which should be obvious by now, that we talk about all the plot details yeah. in everything I, that we do. I guess it's this is maybe the first thing we've watched that is like has a twist ending, like like a pretty clear like thing where it's like ooh big twist. Yeah, yeah, and and so the twist is in a way it is this kind of. Uh, cliche it was all in your head kind of thing uh which is um which as you were saying is emphasized and 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 depicted in this really cool way by the backgrounds you think the backgrounds are are just an interesting stylistic touch but they are depicting like the hallucinations the delusions of somebody who is in an insane asylum Mm -hmm. although once we find out that he's in an he's been in an insane asylum this whole time the sets don't change we don't then move into like realistic looking sets i guess you could say that it's like coming from his perspective in a way yeah and there's even like so the this movie was written by two guys it's written by hans janowitz and karl meyer so they wrote this movie as a like direct response to world war one and like germany's experience in world war one so the kind of core outside of the opening and closing sort of framing device scenes this movie is about a a sort of mad doctor a mad psychiatrist who uses a sleepwalking man to commit murders and sort of the big like uh metaphor of it is like an authority figure using the youth to like commit murders for their own ends basically mm-hmm. their their perspective on world war one um and the, the the sort of twist ending and the sort of narrative like framing device of like the main bulk of the movie being a flashback wasn't or sort of maybe wasn't part of their original pitch for it it's mm-hmm. there's a lot of conflicting information about the making of this movie and it was made a very long time ago so it's like hard to kind of verify some things um but uh, the the idea that, like, oh, the guy was crazy the whole time and Caligari is just a normal doctor kind of invalidates that 
like uh metaphor a bit um yeah so it's like that may or may not have been their idea like that might have been a thing that was added on to their initial script um even though it's like one of the most kind of notable things about this movie is it's like narrative structure that it's like told as a flashback and like an unreliable flashback at that yeah it's um it's it's i mean it starts off with this um framing narrative um which uh in almost this gumpian sense there are two guys <laughs> sitting on a bench uh, true one true one yeah, is like hey one... see that see that girl <laughs> we're supposed to yeah. be married yeah like <laughs> yeah there's uh, uh your main someone who's like okay he looks like our main character he's sitting on a bench next to the guy the guy that kind of looks odd but you don't really think about it mm-hmm. um and then there is a person there's a woman who walks by and looks just completely blank and distant and then he goes you see that lady that's my fiance <laughs> let me tell you about how we met um and and then it becomes it goes all the way inside of this thing it's not presented in like a uh like as if there's narration over it it just mm-hmm. says uh it just has this very short opening sequence that you forget about pretty quickly yeah um and then and then it becomes most the bulk of the movie which is this flashback quote unquote and then and then when it comes back out again right and all of these reveals start happening toward the end of the movie that uh that he that that bench is inside an insane asylum uh, and that all of these people are insane uh, is I, I you know in some ways it feels it's like one of those classic like cheap plot twists but if you go back to the original scene like everybody clearly looks insane <laughs> like, <laughs> right yeah like at the beginning of it and you just don't make anything of it and then uh, and then like yeah I think it justifies like some of the kind of um, cliche aspects of the twist mm-hmm. uh, because it does yeah, it, it does like kind of really sell the fact that th- these people are uh, all deranged. <laughs> also, who's to say that that twist was a cliche at this point? You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The kind of the bulk of the movie is uh, our main character Francis and his friend Jack go to like a, a carnival where there's a, a sort of attraction being put up by uh dr caligari the world's most suspicious looking man <laughs> um and they go in and he's talking about how he has this somnambulist named cesare somnambulist meaning sleepwalker um and uh so he, he's like this you know this man has slept his entire life but we're gonna wake him up um also we can predict the future totally unrelated to the fact that he's a sleepwalker he can also predict the future. <laughs> that that just happens when you sleep for too long. Yeah. So then he's like, all right, who wants to know their fortune? And uh, Francis' friend Jack is like, tell me my future. And uh, Cesare says, uh, you you will die by dawn tomorrow. Um, which is typical goth behavior that <laughs> <laughs> you're just giving people like dark portents. And so Jack naturally is freaked out by this and is in fact murdered that night, which Francis finds very suspicious, rightfully, and vows to bring the killer to justice. And so the the sort of main plot of the movie is this kind of like 
not really murder mystery because I think it was pretty obvious from the get go who the murderer is and like what mm-hmm. that whole situation is. Um, is that the way Columbo does it? Like you know, you know who the murderer is the whole. I time. I mean, that like fully is like the opening scene of Columbo is usually the murderer committing the murder, so like the <laughs> audience is fully in on who done it the whole time. I've never watched Columbo, but like. Uh, I feel like there are a lot of Columbo memes right now. Everybody's really into Columbo yeah. lately. <laughs> it's a really good show. I've only seen a couple episodes of it, but it's, it's it holds up. <laughs> so then it's like Francis is going talking to cops and like trying to figure out who the murderer was. Um, they capture a sort of copycat killer who was kind of using the other murders to like trying to do like a similar crime in order to get, get away with it. Um, they go and investigate Dr. Caligari, the world's most suspicious man, um, and see that Cesare sleeps in a coffin again. Very goth behavior. Um, and they they kind of stake out like the room where he's staying at. Um, but then Cesare still breaks into Jane's. Jane being his fiance from the beginning, uh, breaks into her room and uh, uh, kidnaps her. And then they're like, "Wait, how how could he have gotten out?" Yeah, like I've been watching him the whole time. Right, and it turns out that the there was a dummy of him sleeping in the coffin. So he's that's how he was able to be in two places at once. Daring, it's it's a it's a brilliant trick. Yeah, um, and so they 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 chase Caligari back to the asylum where he works and find out that he's the director of the asylum. The lunatic is running the asylum. Whoa. Um, and they read his diary and find out that he. Uh, assumed the alias of Dr. Co- Dr. Caligari after this other 18th century Italian doctor of the same name who also used a somnambulist to commit murders. Um, and there's a pretty cool scene, like a, a, a flashback within a flashback scene where we see Caligari is sort of like going insane and seeing the words, you must become Caligari, like appearing everywhere he looks. Mm. Um, which was... Yeah, just a cool use of, like, text on screen that wasn't intertitles. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that would be this kind of, like, um, uh, delusional voice narration. Probably mm-hmm. depicting voices in his head, right. uh, but depicting it visually. And, and, and of course, like, in the, the, the font was very Caligari-styled. Yeah, yeah. Um, even in the intertitles themselves, they have this very kind of, like, gothic German... Mm-hmm. font use um so they throw Caligari, uh they throw caligari in the asylum and the kind of flashback narrative ends and we find out that francis is actually an inmate and like all the other characters in the story are other inmates like cesare jane everybody and caligari's so just there like making up like fan fiction about all the people yeah. around him um and like caligari's there and he looks like a normal person um and then Francis gets tries to attack him and gets thrown into a straitjacket in the same cell that he that we see Caligari get thrown in earlier. Um, and so it's like twist. He was the crazy one, but then the there is the kind of thing of like the sets don't get normal at the end. Like there's still these sort of twisted, you know, expressionistic sets. Mm. So it's like, it's not like we're fully coming out of the reality of like this nightmarish 
you know, reality that we're in. Um, there was also, I, I watched, uh, uh, like a sort of, I don't know, scholarly talk about this movie on YouTube by, uh, uh, a film professor, Gilberto Perez, who points out that when Francis gets thrown in the cell at the end, uh, there are some shapes on the wall that are like painted on the walls that when we see Caligari get thrown in the first time in the flashback, we see these shapes on the wall. And when Francis gets thrown in at the end, the shapes have been like scraped off. So it's huh. like, did, you know, like when are these things taking place? Like what's going on there? And like, maybe this is all reading way too much into it, you know, but I do think that it's, it's cool that this movie has that level of like ambiguity to it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it plays with so many, just um, so many ideas of like, what is real? What isn't real? Um, like what can you believe from what people say that those kind of classic, uh, <laughs> I don't know, classic mental health related uh, mm-hmm. uh, theming, theming ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, the writers, uh, Maya Runyanowicz talked about how, like, they felt following Allure 1, there was just this sense of, like, insanity. That, like, humanity had gone insane from their experience of, like, living through that. Mm. And that's kind of what they wanted to... That's, like, why they wanted to make this movie, is just to be like, this was crazy! <laughs> Everyone is... Everyone's gone mad! Why is everyone murdering each other? Um... <laughs> Which I do think it, it gets that across, even with its sort of like twist ending, which they seemingly like weren't really supportive of. Um, I think it 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 does have this overall sense of just like reality being kind of unmoored and and kind of, uh, you know, un, unsteady. Mm hmm the same uh director and set designer and were the same writers involved um well, carl meyer was also involved they made a movie um another movie called genuine in uh later in 1920 uh which is kind of like a follow-up in a way to caligari it uses um similar um it's not it's i've looked at some clips from it it's not like as wild as the sets are but it does have like some more of that kind of expressionist strangeness to it it's uh it's horror it's horror adjacent um one of the alternate titles is genuine a tale of a vampire oh but um, like vampire in the 1910s kind of sense yeah yeah uh a, a a vamp um so uh it's about a sexy lady but uh I don't, I don't know too much about it, but um, it uh, it does seem like an interesting uh, related piece yeah. to Caligari. Um, yeah, it's I don't know, it's cool that this movie was part of like a greater arts movement. I think too that like expressionist paintings were a thing, and so like this film uses a lot of like expressionist set design as like mm-hmm. part of um, as part of that. It's like it's like part. I don't know. Just the the idea that it's it's not German expressionism wasn't just a film style or film movement. It was like a big kind of arts movement in Germany. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, this movie is definitely we kind of touched on it before, but it's like you can definitely see the influence of it in a lot of things. 
Yeah, Tim Burton looked at this movie and he was like, that please. Yes, <laughs> this I'm going to make this movie my whole identity. Um, <laughs> uh, this is uh, supposedly this is Nicolas Cage's favorite film, at least according to the fictionalized version of him in The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. He talks a lot about uh, it, this being his favorite movie, which I imagine is true. Like, it makes sense that Nicolas Cage would, would love this movie. Um, this is one of those movies that gets cited as like the first of many things. Like it's, it's the first horror movie, like the first psychological horror movie. And I'm like, that's all horseshit. Like (laughs) there's been movies that were intended to be scary before this, you know, it's the first, um, Caligari movie. Yeah. Yeah, sure. But I mean, it does, it does seem like the first of a lot of things. It does seem very revolutionary in many ways, but Mm -hmm. yeah, the, the, as usual, the way that people want to talk about this era of film is a little too, a little too perfect. It's a little too cute. It's a little too easy. Yeah. Too kind of definitive, like things evolved more than they just kind of started out of thin air. Um, uh, but I think this movie is definitely like the most, one of the most influential movies from this time period. Like mm-hmm. you can really see how it, uh, yeah, just how people watch this. We're like, oh, wow, there's a lot more that we can do with this medium that maybe we haven't been taking advantage of. Yeah. And uh, Conrad Veidt, who played, um, who played Cesare, the somnambulist, um, and, uh, Robert Vina, uh, they worked together on another movie, uh, another uh, probably Robert Vina's other more famous, mo- other famous movie called The Hands of Orlock uh, mm. from 1924. Uh, and Conrad Veidt starred in that. And um, I think the next movie we'll talk about is a movie about Jewish folklore that is directed by a non-Jewish person, the Gentile who. Uh, who, when the Nazis came to power, stayed in <laughs> stayed stayed in Germany and continued making movies, uh, which yeah, uh, including like propaganda movies, De- which not a bad, great bad look. stuff, not a great look. Uh, maybe rethink that one, Chief. Um, but Robert Robert Vina um, was Jewish and fled Germany. Um, Conrad Veidt uh, was not Jewish. But he uh, was completely anti-Nazi, which is so refreshing to hear, (laughs) like, you know, to hear a non-Jewish person from the 1920s and 30s uh, be, like, strongly anti-fascist is uh, is a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Uh, Conrad Veidt married a Jewish woman and uh, and left for England uh, but when he had to like register his race, like with the Nazis, when that happened, he put himself down as a Jew, even though he wasn't. Uh, so good going Conrad Veidt. We yeah. stand. Um, there's definitely going to be more movies with Conrad Veidt that we're going to cover. So I'm, I'm intrigued to like read more about him and kind of figure out what, what his deal was. Um, Cause yeah, he's, he's very good in this. He's very menacing, but he also has a lot of like, soulfulness i guess yeah like yeah. cesare you can is, see that he's tortured and sexy right <laughs> cesare is is kind of uh feels like a, a kind of a classical like movie monster almost like he's he's scary but he's also very human 
and yet yeah. tortured and, and sympathetic. Um, which, uh, yeah, it feels, if, if you can see, I think, I don't know if uh, Boris Karlov saw this movie before he played the Frankenstein monster, but I feel like there's a bit of kind of lineage that you can see between those two performances mm. hmm. for sure. Um, I mean, a lot of like slow walking and, and you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Carrying, carrying I mean, women around. <laughs> I think the main difference is that like Cesare is like, he just seems completely out of control of himself. He mm-hmm. is, uh, he's being hypnotized. He's being put under and just being, he seems like, somebody who is appropriately sad for having been asleep until like through his mid (laughs) twenties. And, uh, but he, you know, he's just being somewhat of an automaton. Uh, I guess the last thing I would say about this movie is that if we were to make a remake these days, uh, based solely on cheekbones, I would probably cast Timothy Chalamet as as Cesare. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, good choice. Like let's, let's, let's make it happen. Let's get let's get Chalamet on board and, and remake this movie. Tim, hit us up. <laughs> <laughs> hit us up in the comments, Tim. <laughs> but yeah, speaking of German expressionist, this is probably like I would say this is maybe the second most famous German expressionist movie. Or, yeah, or up yeah. up there at least that came out in the same year. The Golem. Der Golem. In Der German. Golem. Yeah, I I had seen Doctor Caligari before. I had never seen this one. Same. Yeah. So yeah, and this so this one's directed by Paul Wegener, um, who we have dealt with before, but yeah. all, not in not in nearly a decade, I believe. Yeah, um, we watched uh The Student of Prague, which yes. is a weirdly kind of similar movie to this in some ways. That well was... he was inspired to write this movie and and the original version of this movie, this is kind of a remake of um, he was inspired to make this movie while in Prague filming Student of Prague. There you go. Uh, and hearing local legends from uh, from the Jewish people around him uh, about the 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 golem kind of mythology. Mm-hmm. Student of Prague, yeah, is considered probably like a proto German expressionist movie. Yeah, and uh, Paul Wegener is a pretty central German expressionism in film figure, mm-hmm. uh, in no small part due to this movie and his performance in it. So yeah, so this is, uh, this is expressionist royalty once again, yeah. that we're touching on. I was very impressed by like the, the overall, I guess, like filmmaking of this movie, even though I think narratively Caligari's kind of got more going on. I would agree and I think holds together a bit more. I mean, I think that this movie is probably, it's kind of a more entertaining watch than Caligari. Caligari is like really cool, but it's a little slow. Uh, and this one, I feel like there's stuff happening all the time. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's got like, it's a lot plottier. Yeah. Um, it's got a lot going on and it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good movie. Yeah. Um, they're definitely not as, the sets are not as heightened or theatrical. They're a bit, but they are also like bigger and kind of like they're more tactile, I guess, in the sense that it's like they built a town for this movie. So, right. Um, it feels it's... like kind of a bigger budget, like kind of kind of thing. I don't know if it actually yeah. was or not, but I mean, they built a town. So and some of the um, some of the sets are still 
that kind of funky German expressionist look to them. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not as heightened as Caligari, uh, but it's still more heightened than if it were trying to be realistic. Right. Although this movie, I feel like, is more about trying to kind of create a heightened reality, like in the doll, than it is about sort of mm. trying to reflect the character's actual like inner mindset or like mindscapes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, this is, it's based on, like, an old legend. It's its kind of set in medieval times. It is, I mean, maybe in the same way as the doll, it's going for this, like, fairy tale kind of, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like a parable. It's a, it's a post-Frankenstein, proto-Frankenstein peril, <laughs> a, a par- parable, in a way. Right. Yeah, so this movie, the rough strokes of the story are that, um, is that a phrase, rough strokes? Sure. I don't know. Broad strokes. <laughs> the, rough, the broad strokes of the story are that uh, there is a ghetto in some kind of vague Middle Ages kind of time that is full of in um, in Prague, in in Prague. Yeah, that is uh, full of Jewish people. Um, they're all kind of living their life happy enough in their isolated community, um, but then uh, the kind of royalty decides that the jewish people in the community can't be trusted um and so they are to leave the ghetto and um you know they're lose their homes and everything like that uh and so uh one of the head rabbis is trying to kind of uh, like a multi-prong sort of defense (laughs) for their community uh one being kind of making a personal appeal to the king to like kind of let them be uh and that they're not trying to harm anybody uh and the other one being all right but like we might need to harm people so let's uh let's create a a monster to defend us let's create a giant man out of clay (laughs) golem 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 i made him out of clay etc um (laughs) yeah so this is a movie that um is i mean weird for somebody who eventually you know, I don't know if he was explicitly a Nazi, but, you know, he kind of continued eh, working as the Nazis right. were in he, power. He, he was not one of the German filmmakers who fled Germany when Nazis came to power. He instead decided to stay there and make propaganda films under the Nazi regime, which is... Continued to be an actor. Uh, yeah. not, not a great look. Um, did somewhat, uh, I think, color my reaction to this movie, knowing that. I didn't like, know it until the movie was over. And like, I would have assumed that it was made by a Jew if before, you know, before knowing that. Right. Well, cause I wanted to know going in, like was Paul Bagan or Jewish. And so finding that out, I was like, well, it, I, so it made me wonder like how anti-Semitic is this movie? And I don't really have a good answer for that because <laughs> there's parts of it that looking at it through that lens, I can definitely see as being sort of reliant on like, very old-fashioned, probably pretty anti-Semitic, like, stereotypes or, or like, character tropes and that kind of thing. Um, there's, like, this weird scene at the end where the golem finds a bunch of, like, very Aryan-looking children. And that kind of, like, stops his violent rampage. I think it's mostly that they're cute kids, not necessarily that they're Aryan. <laughs> True, but it's, like, they're all these, like, little blonde children in, like, pigtails. Yeah. I don't know. So yeah, I I don't I don't know. As a gentile myself, I don't have a good a good read on that. Cuz the movie is also 
I don't think this movie is intentionally anti-Semitic, I guess. It's like No, I mean honestly, I feel like this movie is pretty sympathetic to like historical Jewish persecution. Yeah. Uh it's like depicting these, you know, pretty innocent, harmless people in this Jewish community uh, uh save the fact that they're, you know, creating a monster um who uh you know, are are facing persecution for no reason from people yeah. who don't trust them. Um, and all they're trying to do is defend themselves. Um, and, and it also like evinces a, a lot of, um, research into just like Jewish folklore and, and, uh, like Talmudic stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, like as far as like, there is a decent, you can tell that there's like a decent amount of like research into the literature uh in this movie yeah for sure there's a lot uh, of like there's a lot of lore and a lot of like mythology that this movie gets into that um i tried to read up on as best i could there's a lot of it so yeah i mean so one of the one of the rabbis who decides to construct and uh and animate a golem uh he reads from a kind of necronomica like a necromancer's type book <laughs> uh, I, I don't know it, it, it's involving a lot of like jewish mysticism and some kind of kabbalistic stuff i believe but um in particular he summons a demon uh called astaroth who grants him this and and of course as a demon who he's making a pact with there's like a catch uh, which is the kind of yeah. crux of the the finale of this movie yeah uh but he he does this really i i think th there's this uh, really cool scene where he is um summoning astaroth it reminded Incredible me of scene. like like melies in a lot of ways yeah um but like technically i, I think a lot more advanced than yeah a lot of the millier stuff yeah yeah like he um he like draws like a circle of fire around himself and then like a face kind of comes out of the smoke and then like words come out of the face's mouth and says like this is the like basically like this is the incantation that you need to do yeah. to animate this golem and it's this like freaky demon face it's great i mean it, it it's been a minute i feel like films have been going for such a like a realism in the last mm -hmm. decade and like i've missed this kind of like fun like wizards conjuring demon <laughs> stuff that we used to get a lot it's of true. The time <laughs> yeah um and maybe we've just been focusing on kind of more real realism focused movies lately but yeah it was this it did also remind me of yeah like the the fun of of melier's stuff uh astaroth um i don't know I, I did a lot of research into Astaroth for some reason, but uh, just because like there's a lot of mythology and lore around Astaroth as like a a, a demon. Yeah, um, Astaroth was um, in the way of a lot of um, uh, commonly understood demon names. It came from uh, religious like holy figures from comp competing religions, <laughs> of course. Um, so such as like Baal. Uh, being the root of Beelzebub, um, huh. and Astaroth is um, uh, a derivation of the Phoenician goddess Astarte, uh, which you may know more familiarly in its Babylonian form of Ishtar. 
Ah. Astroth appears in a version of Faust uh, and is also the antagonist of a movie that I uh, only found out existed, that came out last year, that I only found out existed now, which is R.I.P.D. 2, which is a Netflix <laughs> a, a Netflix original sequel to Holy shit. Re- Rest in Peace Department. <laughs> wow. So Astaroth uh, shown up in classical 1920s film, The Golem, also yep. R.I.P.D. 2. <laughs> Um, so in his book, it says he who possesses the key of Solomon can get the life giving word from Astaroth when the celestial bodies are in place. Um, and, uh, it's, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a really fun scene. It's, yeah. it's all this occult stuff is a lot of fun. And I, I mean, again, like you could interpret this stuff in various ways, depending on how, like, whether you think this is an anti-Semitic work. Uh, like, you know, these, as if they are, I don't know, doing, like, summoning some kind of evil thing or doing something bad or whatever. But really, it's like, I don't know. It's it's, it's just cool. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's it, it's cool, and, and the only reason the golem really goes bad is because of uh, kind of petty uh, jealousy involved yeah. in a, a love yeah. triangle. Um. Yeah, the the golem is also played by the director Paul Wegener, mm-hmm. um, in sort of like big platform shoes and and a bunch of makeup and like a wacky wig thing, um, and uh, speaking of Frankenstein influences, this performance feels especially Frankenstein-y in terms of his movement and sort of uh. I mean, it's like a constructed human being that is yeah. walking around and like doing stuff, um, <laughs> causing causing chaos and such. I mean, at at first, it's like the golem is uh, is just kind of performing uh, helpful tasks for the rabbi, carrying groceries, that sort of thing. Yeah, as as like a test, I guess. But it's very funny to like um, get do necromancy to get someone to do your shopping for right. you. Um, the, there's a sort of rule where that the, there's a kind of amulet on the golem's chest that if you remove it uh he you know turns back to a lifeless clay statue and he sort of tests that a couple times of like take the amulet off and he goes to sleep and you put the amulet back in and he wakes up and you can do what you tell him to and so he uh rabbi low uh takes the golem with him to sort of appeal to the the king or the emperor um, to be like, hey, can you maybe not banish our entire village? <laughs> um, and he's like, show me a magic trick. Yeah. Um, and so Rabbi Lo creates a sort of magic light show, which is basically like a film. Like he is sort of like conjuring images out of the air. Yeah. Um, to kind of show him the history of the Jewish people and give him a, like, hey, maybe not banish us um but he tells everyone don't make any noise or laugh or a calamity will happen don't laugh this Um, is the original alamo draft house (laughs) yeah exactly uh you will be ejected from the theater without a refund if uh if you laugh at my light show and the audience sees uh a figure in christian mythology that i was not really familiar with the wandering jew who supposedly in the mythology uh 
taunted Jesus on the cross and was cursed to wander the land. Um, and everyone starts laughing. I'm not entirely sure why, but um, I guess they just find the plight uh, amusing. <laughs> um, and so a calamity happens and the roof caves in. Um, but the golem uh, sort of holds up part of the ceiling to save uh, the rabbi and the and the king. Um, who is then thankful for having his life saved from the roof caving in and declares the Jewish community pardoned. Pardoned for what? He doesn't say. And so they go back to the to their their village, uh, but the the golem is sort of starting to be a little is not following his commands entirely anymore. And so he removes the medallion and finds out that after the planets shift, after they're not in alignment anymore, Astaroth will take control of the golem and make him do bad things. So he's realizing that the planets are no longer aligned and he can't he can't be using the golem to do stuff because he's Astaroth is going to control the golem. So he's about to destroy the golem, but he gets called away to celebrate at the temple for not being banished. Um, and so his creepy assistant, because there's always a creepy assistant in these movies, <laughs> um, wakes the golem back up because the rabbi's daughter is sleeping with like the messenger from the king. Squire Florian. Squire Florian with his big... a floppish, uh, a foppish goy. Yes, uh, with a big feather in his hat. Um, so he's jealous, and so he wakes the golem back up uh, to sort of break the door down and chase the messenger off, which he does. Um, and the golem chases the messenger up onto the roof, um, and he jumps off and dies. The the uh, the the foppish messenger, not the golem. Um, and then he grabs the, the daughter by the braids of her hair, which is a particularly kind of unsettling image and mm. drags her through the streets, which is, yeah, like it's, it, it's not it's Frankenstein. <laughs> it's very Frankenstein, but it's like more upsetting than I'm used to seeing from like an old movie. Like in, mm. in like classic James Whale Frankenstein, he's like holding the woman, like, you know, like a block of wood. Or whatever. Um, uh, in this, the golem's just dragging a woman by her hair, like through the street, and it's really like, ugh, it's just upsetting to look at. The movie gets gruesome. I mean, the the whole scene of like the squire jumping off and then just like, you know, his mangled body on yeah. the ground. You it's know? really, it's really well shot. It's really, yeah, just like the the way the set is built and the way that it's sort of covered. Um. And we've we've shot films uh, where bodies fly off of off of this roofs. is true. Yeah, they did a good job. No, we shoot no all the ones where the bodies flop out. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, the golem eventually just kind of drops. Uh, Miriam is the name of the daughter, um, and kind of breaks down the front gate of the of the ghetto, and sees a bunch of children playing, um, and most of them are kind of scared and run off. But one of them. And a particularly innocent looking one approaches him and they kind of stare at each other. Um, and he kind of picks her up, just, I guess, sort of awestruck at the, the innocence. And she reaches out and plucks the medallion from his chest and he, you know, loses his uh, his sense of self. I thought in this moment he was going to topple over and fall on top of the kid and kill her, but that doesn't happen. <laughs> Um, and then everyone, he does look pretty heavy. And then everyone, you know, rejoices and celebrates that the, the golem's rampage is, is staved. 
Um, and that's that's the movie. Yeah. Um, Super good. I liked it a lot. There, yeah. There's a, the uh to sort of like bring back to its sort of place in German expressionism. Um, the sets in this movie are also like very different from Caligari. Uh, but super impressive to look at. Um, a lot of the interiors, like the rooms, are designed to look like internal organs, which is pretty cool. Like they're these kind of weird shapes, um, which I didn't pick up on until I I watched part of this movie with uh, the DVD commentary, um, which is uh, I I wish I watched the whole thing because there's lots of good information in there about it. Um. Uh, the the idea that this movie is made in 1920s Germany and is about this sort of like omen foretelling calamity for the Jewish people is is kind of spooky, I guess. Mm, yeah. Paul Wegener uh, apparently also fought in World War One and was like covered in clay, and that might have influenced part of him making this movie. That like he was he like saw himself as this like clay man. <laughs> Do, doing violence i'm kind of a clay guy yeah he um i mean this is not the first time that he made this movie though he well he heard about this legend in 1913 and then i think in 1916 and another year after that um he made no longer existing versions of the golem story but they weren't this exact story they were different he made three golem movies a golem trilogy as it were and this is the only one that survives but this is the like origin story one. I think the others are about the golem doing other things, and this is about like how the golem was created, as opposed to the others where it's just like the golem's adventures. I don't know. I haven't seen them. They don't exist anymore. But yeah, and then this movie is also like Caligari, is sort of inspired by World War One and like the violence and the horror experienced by the people who made it. Um, which is interesting that like. I don't know, I just, like, we watched uh, a couple episodes ago, we watched the, the French film, um, J'accuse, which was also a movie about, like, the horrors of World War One, but it's a very literal movie about, like, people go off to war and then they're haunted by it. Whereas yeah. this is sort of, like, taking the ideas and sort of externalizing them into these, like, fantastical monster movies. It's about, like, the sp- the the societal spiritual toll of the war to end all yeah. wars and also like the idea that of kind of like both these movies feel kind of anti-authority in a way of like hmm. that it's like a lot of violence is perpetuated by like people in in power and who don't really like care about the plight of everyday people um which is I don't know, it's 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 interesting how similar these two movies are. Like they're part of the same overall movement. And like they have a lot of big differences to them. Like the filmmaking style is pretty different, but um they have a lot of like thematic connection, I guess. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Good movie. <laughs> another uh another movie that um is quite anti authoritarian. Mm. Uh is the first movie that we've seen uh, for our show by one Douglas Fairbanks, mm. um, which 
is also the first movie with a, 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 temp, a, a title of a character you may be familiar with, The Mark of Zorro. 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 The first Zorro film. That yes. I mean, that is a definitive first, right? There are no Zorro films yes. before this one. The original Zorro story uh, uh, was, pub- was published, serialized in a magazine, um, and that came out in 1919. Yeah. So this is a pretty uh, an adaptation that came out pretty soon afterward, and uh, this movie is so fun, super fun. I, <laughs> this is um, feels like the prototype of every kind of like wisecracking superhero in a way. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's based on like a pulp story, so it has that kind of like pulp you know, pulp hero thing going on. Yeah. Um, And yeah, Zorro has like a secret identity. He has like a cave underneath his mansion. We can get into, Batman is basically Zorro. Like. Basically white Zorro. I mean, to the, to the point where in Batman comics, they acknowledge that. And it's like this movie, the Mark of Zorro in 1920 is the movie that Bruce Wayne sees with his parents the night they were murdered. Like I believe in, it's in supposed the, to be the the 1940 remake of well, Zorro. The the uh Batman Origin comic was released uh before that movie was. So I think it's supposed oh. to be this one. I think huh. it also changes depending on like when the comics come out, right? So like in like Frank Miller comics, <laughs> it's it's a newer Zorro movie. Like it's and yeah, so it's Mask of Zorro in what in the, the I don't the think it ever flag. has been, but like it should be right if like a you know in like uh, I don't know Robert Pattinson Batman saw the Mask of Zorro when it came out and that's <laughs> that's the night his parents were were killed. Um, but yeah, like this movie is very uh, has there, people have made no secret about how this movie influenced Batman. This movie starts off, I mean, you know, in line with uh, with our segue here, this movie starts off with a title card just talking about the nature of oppression mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and how, um, you know, how how in in this time in uh, this is set in oh God, I don't remember exactly some it's like the some 18, number of years earlier 1800s, like early yeah. to mid 1800s, I want to say. 1800s like california mexico um uh proto america etc mm-hmm. it's very it's very much a western in a lot of ways mm-hmm. uh but yeah so it's talking about uh the way that kind of wealthy land-owning politicians and uh plutocrats will like oppress in particular like the poor um and and the indigenous people and um and how they flaunt the church uh to, for their own selfish ends and zorro is the man who fights to defend all of these things against the the powers that be zorro zorro fought for the people <laughs> it's the the opening of the movie is really cool too like i i i, I really enjoy the way this movie opens because it's like a guy in a bar with a very conspicuous Z-shaped scar on his face mm-hmm. uh, and like talking about like how he got this scar, you know? So <laughs> you want to know how I got these scars, <laughs> but, um, but he, 
um so like this idea of like zoro is like like as this like specter of somebody who's uh maiming bad dudes is uh uh hanging over this entire scene you're like who is zoro where is zoro what does he look like you know yeah um yeah does a great job like build before we ever see him like building up the character of zoro of like this this mythic figure kind of and then zoro does show up and there's a cool fight yeah more or less i mean he's talking about like how he's like yeah i was just like you know uh harming an indigenous person for no reason and then this guy (laughs) carved a z in my face (laughs) with his sword so you know they start um they start uh 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 kind of tempting the fates because zoro's got a a a bit of a spidey sense and knows when uh when somebody's beating up on uh an, a native american and so uh he he swings in to defend them at at any time it happens the people the guy who is scarred is he's associated with the sergeant who is like working for the mayor or like the, 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 kind governor. Of, the, the, so the governor the corrupt governor yeah yeah so so it's this like corrupt police force working for a corrupt governor uh who are people who are just like vindictive violent like awful people uh which you know i think that a lot of i don't know anti-authoritarian or like commentary on police in silent films up till now it's been a lot of the like bumbling cop variety but mm-hmm. not like this kind of familiarly evil cop variety right yeah um yeah i uh this movie feels very kind of robin hood-esque also yeah which mm-hmm. uh, makes sense like uh uh douglas fairbanks would later make a robin hood movie i think in 21 or 22 yeah it really it goes very hard on the sort of anti-authoritarian like streak it's like no no no. like this movie is is about someone like defending the 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 poor and and from the sort of corrupt establishment which is great 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 story it's always compelling this is the first united artists release after it was founded um and it's co-written and produced by douglas fairbanks who plays plays zorro or senor zorro as he's often referred to in this one and also his alter ego don diego vega indeed um yeah this this movie has the kind of classic uh he's got a secret identity as diego vega who's this sort of like wealthy oaf uh who is sort of trying to to hide the fact that he's actually this, you know, uh, swashbuckling outlaw guy. Um, he's got a secret lair under his manor. He has like a, a you know, a calling card. Um, <laughs> he's got like an Alfred type guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's got a, a dad who's like telling, "Oh, you'll never amount to anything. You're just a layabout. You're just lying around the house." And he's like, "Ah, he, he... you don't know." <laughs> It, the the way that um i mean honestly the way that fairbanks plays both zorro and vega are so great um like zorro zorro when you, when he's zorro you're having like it, like it's infectiously fun like i i was grinning ear to ear the yeah. entire time that zorro was like taunting these guys and like he's doing all these amazing acrobatic tricks and Parkour. like like He's doing all this. He's he doing he par- straight up does parkour in this movie. Like parkour <laughs> moves of the, I forget what it's called. When you like leap over a thing and like you push off with your hands. 
Oh, true. Yeah. Um, he's like climbing up the sides of buildings. He's swinging off of ropes. Um, and again, because it's an old silent movie, like there were no tricks involved, really. Like he Douglas Fairbanks could just do all this stuff. Yeah, and he, um, and and yeah, his energy when he is Zorro is just so great. Like he is, um, you know, you you hate these guys that he's messing with so much and it feels so satisfying for him to kind of make them look like fools but then like on the other side of the coin like when he is playing uh his bruce wayne type character Mm -hmm. uh he just overdoes this kind of like absurd laziness and and (laughs) like like he's he plays him like so dumb and so and like uh, cowardly too and cowardly yeah. yeah and uh i i i he's like yawning all the time he made me think <laughs> of prince valium from Spaceballs. <laughs> uh and he, he like yeah regardless he like steals the scene i think um yeah he, he's super, great. super charismatic in this movie um i do love how zoro doesn't just like fight the the villains he like makes fun of them and like goes out of his way to like be a be a scamp yeah um like there's a bit where he's he's getting chased and like he like runs around a thing so he's like behind them and is like poking him in the back with the sword and yeah it's like even during like fight scenes or like stunts and things like that he's finding ways to like inject personality into it um which is super fun to watch there's a, there's a plot in this movie um, of Don Diego Don Diego's dad uh, kind of saying that he needs to get married um, because he is too much of a, a a rich boy who does nothing and <laughs> needs to become a productive member of society or whatever. But uh, he doesn't want to get married because he wants to spend all of his free time being Zoro. It must be Zoro. <laughs> Um, so he does th- there's this great scene where he is just doing the best that he can to be like extremely like lame like yeah. when he's meeting <laughs> when he's meeting the the lady he like starts doing shadow puppets and like and like starts like uh like you know taking uh you know taking like a napkin and like doing like little magic tricks and stuff <laughs> and, and it's it's very funny that it's like like uh yeah, it's it's the same kind of way that we would depict somebody uh, being kind of awkward and lame now. Uh, yeah, magic tricks. Yeah, <laughs> but like not not really good magic tricks either. Yeah, and there's a point where she says he isn't a man; he's a fish. <laughs> <laughs> he's like set up kind of with this the daughter of this other wealthy landowning family named uh, Lolita Polito. Uh, the name Lolita, I feel like kind of got ruined by vladimir nabokov with the book lolita so it's like whenever yeah. i see that name pop up or something now i'm like oh yikes but back in 1920 it was just a normal name yeah uh, douglas fairbanks before this i think had done mostly like comedies and like costume drama type of things this is his first like this is the movie that made him like an action star right um which and is he's a... so good at yeah as, i mean he's, he's, he's very good i'm i'm excited to watch like thief of baghdad and robin hood and more more movies like this that he did afterwards um you mentioned the the sort of alfred-esque character uh whose name is bernardo who is 
I think referenced in the 1998 movie, The Mask of Zorro, which is about the same character. Anthony Hopkins plays uh, old Diego Vega in that movie. Um, and he, he uh, at one point, he's in disguise as a servant, and he uses the name Bernardo as, like, part of his disguise. Ah. And I was like, ah, I see! Um, <laughs> well, I didn't realize, yeah, I guess Mask of Zorro is kind of uh, Batman Beyond of Zorro. No, it, it absolutely is. Um, <laughs> I believe before Batman Beyond was even a thing. Um, I'm not sure when that show started. I think it was around the same time. But, um yeah it's it's that movie like this one i think zero stuff in general feels very like it's establishing a lot of like superhero ideas and tropes before they really caught on um in sort of more mainstream stuff for sure like the secret identity stuff especially in this movie is like so classic superhero yeah yeah and the sort of him like acting totally different and like trying to hide the fact that he's this like capable fighter too where it's like he's like there's a, a bit late in this movie spoilers well um where he has to he has to fight someone as don diego and he and everyone's like oh he can sword fight like when did this happen um and that i was kind of surprised at that too like this movie doesn't like at the end of this movie everyone finds out that he's zoro and it's like they 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 like you know put put the the governor in his place and it's like oh, okay like the story's done there's no like idea that zoro will have further adventures after this it's like no his secret identity is blown he did what he accomplished <laughs> to do like this is the whole thing which i did find kind of refreshing i guess in that this movie is not is not very sequel baity mm-hmm. no zcu yeah even though they did make a sequel to it called uh don q son of zoro also played by douglas fairbanks uh and this movie was um super popular too it was one of the most popular movies of the year if not the um and uh the original zorro story um was not called the mark of zorro uh but when it was republished uh this year next year it was republished in as with the title of the movie right now a major motion picture a sticker on it <laughs> um, yeah the original like pulp magazine story was the curse of capistrano the castle of cagliostro i mean sounds similar uh, who knows <laughs> um yeah great fun very uh sort of like light adventure uh stuff um a different american movie that is not a light adventure movie but i think is kind of about some of the same themes is uh the oldest surviving film by oscar michaud within our gates yes not his um, first movie that came out in 1919 but is lost unfortunately mm-hmm. um so if we're going to talk about oscar michaud we have to start with this one oscar michaud being the first uh african-american film director which as far as i can tell is like a pretty definitive actual first like or at least like feature film director there were shorts i think but i think even those shorts were mostly directed by white people i don't right i mean it's it's hard to verify any of this stuff um but generally by any historian 
he is considered the first uh black filmmaker yeah and this is like a true um i don't know the term was used at the time called race picture which i think is what they just used to say any movie with black people in it (laughs) um but uh there were movies that were being made you know, as early as what, 1913, 1914, something like that, that were uh, for segregated black audiences and black theaters. And, and as you were implying, mostly or not, mo- not feature films, but they were mostly um, directed by white people engaging in a lot of stereotypes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they were not really being directed from a perspective, like a knowing perspective of uh, someone of lived experience yeah. really i think um, i think the distinction of the sort of movement in film of race films were, were movies by black filmmakers that were explicitly about sort of like the experience of living in america as a black person which this very much is yeah um this you can consider this a response to birth of a nation um it goes over it it concerns a certain a similar period of time, at least in a flashback sequence that uh, that is in this movie. And it is depicting a kind of clan lynching of a black family in a completely opposite and more correct uh, <laughs> light uh, than the kind of heroic portray- portrayal in Birth of a Nation. This movie is... Uh, pretty upsetting honestly it's probably one of the more like harrowing upsetting movies that we've watched on this show yeah um like that scene in particular is like it's very it's shot in a very matter-of-fact way that it makes it all the more just kind of like horrifying to to look at because it it kind of just feels like old footage of you know crimes happening yeah uh, it's definitely a big shift from the sort of like very heightened reality of the German expressionist movies, which are like going so deep into like, yeah, expressionism and sort of uh, theatricality, like heightened realities. And this is like really going for realism. I feel like the point of this movie is to like impress upon people how real uh, the sort of like, uh, race racist violence is in the united states in at the time it was made racist violence and also just um the ways that life is made harder for black people through general racist state sentiment yeah this movie has a a lot on its mind like it covers a lot of topics i think like i mean it it is definitely very much about like uh violence but it is also about like education and religion and capitalism and like women's suffrage and like voter suppression and like all these kind of institutionalized things also um it's a big it's a big movie like it gets into a lot of different topics sort of through the through the sort of like central narrative it sort of touches on all these different things in many ways it's also like a really angry movie you know yeah um... for sure it's a movie that doesn't have a lot of confidence in the goodness of white people, even like non-clan members. There are all sorts of people who have these kind of institutional reasons to, you know, keep to quote, keep Negroes in their place. It, it's really it's, it's like really cynical, honestly, which like, of course, is coming from a good like a like a, a an accurate place. 
I mean, it's cynical up until the very end when it sort of tries to put, like, uh, a hopeful note on it, which to me felt kind of out of place. Yeah, no, that ring that rings so false to me. Right, after this entire movie, we've just seen both, like, very small instances of just, like, oppression happening to, like, full-on murder. And then it, it sort of tries to kind of tie it all up in the end and be like, yeah, but, like... <laughs> be positive we live in america right it's yeah the, it's the greatest country on earth and it's right? like oh. <laughs> um that i mean it's the only thing that i think really kind of doesn't really work about this movie is that i think tonally it doesn't really stick the landing i guess in yeah like it and makes me wonder too if there was almost like pushback of like someone was like this movie's too dark <laughs> you need to have right. like a happy ending um or if it was just trying to then end on a on a positive note as opposed to just because it gets so dark especially towards the end that it it almost feels like you need something to kind of pull you out of it a bit right yeah the basic uh plot is uh there's this the main character is this woman sylvia who um is in the north uh and she it opens with some kind of classic silent movie love triangle hijinks right of uh that you can't have a silent movie without a love triangle there's a character called the leech who uh is like a sort of involved with organized crime and gambling uh there's like her kind of like upstanding um uh is he a fiance i think yeah and there are some kind of complex details that like relating to like her sister or not her sister um her cousin her cousin who uh is jealous of her and so spreads these rumors that she is cheating on him and uh he just storms out immediately doesn't listen to a thing that she says and then he's just basically gone from the movie well he also tries to strangle her to death which is a, a a reaction to have i suppose this movie, I think that like it re- it received some criticism from black movie critics or, or or people in like the NAACP and related that kind of thing at the time, because um, though this movie like you know is very much it has a point of being like anti anti racist and having white people be like the center of the villainy, it is not afraid of showing black people in a complex light which honestly is good i think um like it it there are good black characters and there are bad black characters because they are a spectrum of people and so it it, like in this movie there are depicted a few like black scumbags you know um and people were critical of this because like it's like we already have enough trouble like why are you portraying scumbags that are black uh on on film you know Right, but it's it is almost I feel like all the scumbags in this movie are almost like people who are kind of working against their own self interest in a way, or at least working mm-hmm. against the self interest of like um the black community at large. Like there's the there's like the preacher who's basically just trying to like uh get people to like conform in order because he's getting paid to do so basically yeah like an uncle tom character by wealthy uh white people there's the the like landlord's assistant who uh convinces a, a lynch mob to to hunt down sylvia's sylvia and her family yeah. yeah and so i feel like all the all the all the black characters in this movie who are uh sort of 
portrayed as villainous or or scumbaggy are sort of um representative of a of like a specific type of kind of like almost betrayal and i i did find that to be a kind of like surprisingly nuanced thing like this movie isn't just trying to be like white people bad black people good like it it's it's really trying to get into which it would have the right to do right especially at this time when it's like yikes um but it it really goes out of its way to try to be very nuanced about like weird like all the weird like racial dynamics in america in 1920 and earlier of like and like people just trying to to um survive in a, a society that is not uh you know doesn't treat them as full human beings yeah they're like plot machinations is very complicated a little overly complicated yeah and that's why i kind of feel like talking about the plot of this movie is almost like not the point almost like the plot exists to get to these different scenes that have like thematic weight sure right like the reason why like sylvia has to like go talk to like go to church and like talk to the people is like to show this preacher character and like how he's sort of corrupt um and like oh she like the broad strokes of it are uh sylvia is trying to raise money for uh, a segregated school in the south because the government won't pay enough for education and that's like the first half probably of the movie because she eventually gets the money from a uh, a wealthy old white woman who's a philanthropist well she has to do a heroic act to even like get the attention of this white woman right she has to get like, hit by a car in front of her to save someone yeah yeah and then she still has her doubts about helping her yeah um and then sort of in the back half of the movie we kind of learn more about Sylvia's backstory and how her family was was lynched in the south and how she is adopted and how her own her own dad tries to assault her and then finds out that she's actually his daughter it's a very upsetting third act of this movie um it gets very dark much darker than like maybe anything we've watched i don't know there's definitely been there's nothing in this movie that we haven't seen portrayed on film at this point but I also feel like this movie stacks so much of it on top of it. It's just like one scene of something really awful happening, like in a row towards the end. This like try hard D.W. Griffith darkness. It It is like it's felt. Right. It is, it's melodramatic by contemporary standards, but it's definitely not nearly as melodramatic as, yeah, a lot of the other like sort of serious minded movies that we've watched for the show. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the real like kind of central kind of emotional crux of this movie is that flashback um and uh it feels so like visceral um and it makes you think about how like and, and because it's like tied to like the main character this is set in contemporary times mm-hmm. and there's a main character who uh is re- remembering when she was a child and remembering her time in the South at that time, you know? And, like, this is a movie about, uh, like, sl- not slavery exactly, but sort of, like, Reconstruction era, mm-hmm. this, like, South, and, like, sla- like the, the slavery and, and the effects of it. Um, 
and it's made in living memory of when yeah. people were slaves, right? Like this movie was made uh, there, there were still people alive when this movie came out who were slaves, plenty of them. And you, you feel that, that weight of that history in this movie, especially when it does the flashback to um, the lynch mob in the South, you know? It's like grappling with, like, you know, classic the South in the 1800s racism. It's grappling with, like, systemic racism of this underfunded school, you know, the, the way that that uh, preacher is introduced is that they're the, the, the philanthropist like asks for a second opinion. So, so when she almost gets, when Sylvia almost gets or gets hit by the car, she says like, Oh, what's your deal? And she says, I'm trying to fund a school. And she says, good, like, you know, lucky I'm, I'm a rich philanthropist. <laughs> I'll give you like, what was it? $5,000 or a thousand dollars. I think, I think like she initially offers $5,000. Right. Yeah. And then the philanthropist goes and asks a second opinion from a, like, white Southern woman, uh, a kind of young white Southern woman who uh, thinks that, like, black people basically would not be able to be trusted with $5,000. So if you want to give it to a black person, give it to this preacher who keep i think she says the words keeps negroes in their place Mm -hmm. and you you see him delivering a sermon which is another really complicated thing where he is um saying we black people need to stay in our place specifically because white people are sinners and we need to be pure and if we're not we're not going to be pure if we are like fighting for our equality basically um and but then after he gives his sermon like he has all these financial interests in doing this and like his place in culture and everything like that after the sermon he has a part you know a moment where he thinks about how he's gonna go to hell for selling out his race yeah uh uh for for the things that he's saying for his own for his own kind of short-term gains yeah 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 which is yeah, it's it's so many interesting dynamics going on in this movie. It doesn't get super in depth about any of these things, but it it touches so much on like it it's it feels very comprehensive, I guess in the sense where it's it's trying to give you a pretty broad picture of just like the reality of living in America in 1920. Um you talked about how sort of like the effects of slavery were still very immediate in 1920. Oscar Micheaux's dad uh was enslaved um was born into it um which is a wild thing that humanity has gone through um and so yeah it's like he he had very firsthand knowledge of like reconstruction era like the 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 immediate kind of lingering effects of that and yeah like you said it's it feels you can feel the 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 anger from this movie you can feel the kind of like yeah, and and similar to Birth of a Nation, but from another perspective, this movie was also was also banned in certain areas mm. um, for fear of inciting riots, basically. <laughs> which I don't know. Good, good on you, Oscar. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I <laughs> one week, one year endorses Oscar Micheaux's anti-racism. <laughs> Agreed. Hot take. Hot take. <laughs> uh, I think it's it's kind of interesting how both this and Zorro, uh, Mark of Zorro, are American films made in 1920 about oppression 
and they take such opposite kind of approaches where like Zorro is this sort of like light fantastical adventure movie about mm-hmm. sort of like triumphing over a like corrupt system. And this movie is about sort of just like trying to live within a corrupt system and how oppressive and awful that is. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say that Zorro is pretty impressive, I think, in the time. And it's like respect for indigenous people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that did stick out to me of like this movie is, is surprisingly like progressive for being so old timey. Yeah. Which is just nice to see. Uh, well, I guess that'll close out, close our gates. Uh, <laughs> and then we have another American movie that is uh, not really about a uh, big important subject matter, but is kind of just <laughs> exemplary of a, like a little cultural detail. Yeah, it, I think it's I don't know. It's basically like this is like a raunchy rom com. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, this is the flapper starring uh, Olive Thomas. This uh, was not her last film, but uh, she died shortly er- thereafter at age 25 from accidentally ingesting mercury. That was, what, intended to treat... Uh... Well, that's that's debatable. It probably was, like, cleaning solution. Mm. No one really knows what what happened, how exactly she accidentally ingested mercury solution. But um, Olive Thomas accidentally dying is sort of the first of a few sort of like early Hollywood scandals that eventually led to uh, sort of people asking for censorship and leading to the, the Hayes code, which is the first sort of organized censorship of, of movies in America. Yeah. She was dating um, Mary Pickford's younger brother, Jack Pickford, who you must remember this host, uh, Karina Longworth. Uh, Karina Longworth called uh, the hunt, the Hunter Biden of uh, of the nineteen twenties, the nineteen twenties, which is very funny. Uh, yeah. So I it it felt like we should at least kind of pay due diligence to the fact that Olive Thomas was like a big star in this time period, and that like she's one of a uh, a a number of people that are like famous for how they died, which always feels kind of unfair to who they probably were as people. Yeah. And uh so and also this movie's called The Flapper. It's released in nineteen twenty, so it, it has a sort of like cultural significance in that way of its like Yeah. This is what this is what the youth was up to. I mean it's 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 right at the dawn of flapperism. Uh right. and I don't know if it has too much to say about flapper culture, honestly. It kinda doesn't. I would not be surprised if this movie wasn't called The Flapper until after it was made. Possibly, yeah. I do think this movie is is a, a very interesting cultural object. It's much more interesting as a sort of cultural object than it is like as a movie. Yeah, because it it is it's basically like like a a teen comedy. It's like look at look at the hijinks the the youth is getting up to at, at school, yeah. <laughs> at Mrs. Paddle's school for <laughs> young ladies. Oh man, there was there was that other Mary Pickford movie that we watched that also had a very funny like women's boarding school name was it the mary pickford yeah. movie or was it a well so uh, this this has a lot of joint. similarities with um the uh with daddy long legs yes the, the mary pickford yeah. movie it involves a boarding like like hijinks that of a rowdy girl at a boarding school or, or an orphanage or whatever mm-hmm. um it involves uh, her falling for a much older guy mm-hmm. uh, and there being a love triangle once again with a, with someone who's more her age. 
Does it happen in um in Daddy Long? Yeah, yeah it does, but it it ends differently in Daddy Long Legs. And I, I think that Olive Thomas is playing a Pickfordian character Absolutely. in this movie. Yeah, um, it's this kind of uh, spunky young woman uh, who is being played by someone in their mid twenties. Yeah, uh, sort of, uh, sort of. Uh, uh, yeah, I was gonna say Clifford style, but she's not. She's not playing like a ten year old. She's playing a teenager, right? Um, and yeah, just getting into I don't know hijinks, whatever. Um, and and being kind of innocent, but a little yeah. edgy, and falling in love, and all that kind of stuff. Well, because Mary Pickford did play. She plays like a, a an act like a young child in Daddy Long Legs for the first bit, where she like first goes to school. And yeah. I think even in that, it has a bit of a, like, 10-15 vibe, where it's, like, all most of the other actors are, like, little kids, <laughs> and then it's just Mary Pickford, like, walking around. And, like, she's youthful, and, like, but she's with a not bow a child. In her hair. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, this is, like, it's it's part of a sort of subgenre, I think, of silent film, which is the, like, young women behaving badly movies. Like, it reminded me a lot of Daddy Long Legs, for sure, but also kind of reminded me of like the Ernst Lubitsch movies that we watched. Yeah. And I feel like all of Thomas's performance is reminded me. I think visually she looks kind of similar to Mary Pickford and sort of like how she's styled. Mm-hmm. But I think her performance also did remind me of Ossie Oswalda in the Lubitsch movies that we watched. Like she does a lot with sort of like barely controlled glee in, in a lot of scenes. Yeah. And yeah, this movie isn't great, but uh it has it has its moments i suppose yeah th- i mean you know honestly this movie underscores to me the subtle formal advancements that we've seen in these other movies because mm-hmm. this feels like a movie from a couple of years ago right um, yeah it, this movie feels old-fashioned compared to a lot of the other ones we watched this year yeah it, it feels like it's made in a, a, a rougher way it feels like it's like wet, less well thought out than a lot of these other movies mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's it's fine. It's fun. I'll say um, this it's... about it. It's got some really good intertitles. Like, it has... Yes. It has... Uh, something we've seen a few times is it has, like, paintings as intertitle. Like, it has, you know, text on screen, but they're part of this sort of, like, paintings featuring different imagery that sort of relate to what the scene is. Yeah, which was also done in High and Dizzy. This one reuses a few paintings, but High and Dizzy, like every single title card, was a new painting that was like suggesting metaphorically what was happening in that yeah. scene, which I thought I think is brilliant, and I like the way it's used here too. There's also a lot of funny writing in the intertitles, which is something that you don't, I don't really associate with like silent comedies. I think of like slapstick and the the stunts and things like that but this has a lot of just mm-hmm. like very f- funny writing in turn in like on-screen text it's like the opening scene of the movie is uh, uh in a town called orange springs and it is described as imagine a town where they didn't even have a saloon to close referring to prohibition and there you have orange springs yeah <laughs> um and then uh once uh all of thomas's character ginger king is sent away to to boarding school. Um, there's an intertitle that says "Limbs of Satan from Old Family Trees," and then we cut to a bunch of legs, <laughs> like women's legs. 
they're they're also uh i mean this is not intentionally funny but they're the older man that she falls from she falls for she's kind of like hanging out with all of the all of the other teen girls uh ogling all of all ogling boys they're just like ooh. and there's an intertitle that says their favorite study was the human the human male uh we love anatomy class baby (laughs) so they said their their favorite specimen was like a knight on a horse and quote they just knew he was notorious or very gay perhaps an english lord (laughs) (laughs) this made it so romantic yeah (laughs) so yeah i mean that's just funny because it's old timey and because words it's, mean different things now. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, he's so notorious and gay. <laughs> <laughs> There's like a whole plot where like one of her fellow students is like plotting to steal jewels from the school. Which is which is the only introduction of the like the flapper elements is that she kind of falls in with the bad crowd and like hangs out in New York City for mm-hmm. a minute and then like puts on some flapper gear. Right, that their her like classmates invite her to New York and try to kind of pin the theft of the jewels on her, and so they like leave town and kind of leave her with all the stolen loot, and she instead of being freaked out by this was just like I'm just gonna wear all these jewels and then go back to my hometown and act like I'm rich. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a great scene when she arrives in New York, uh, and she's on like a double decker bus and there's oh, a guy yeah. hitting on her. And he goes, hello, peaches and cream, wither bound. <laughs> <laughs> you telling me that line didn't work? <laughs> yeah, when she gets all dressed up in her kind of jewelry and, and uh, flapper gear, uh, it's referred to in the intertitles as her vampire outfit, which I think is yeah. pretty funny. And she says, I shall probably become a, do- a dope fiend. <laughs> there is a really funny intertitle thing where the towards the end of the movie, when the sort of like all the sort of like secrets are are sort of being revealed and everyone's finding out things about each other and there's the 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 sort of crime couple that has been you know in in the margins of the story and they they kind of walk in on on people discussing their crimes and they uh immediately turn around and leave and the intertitle itself kind of like flips like optically flips around yeah um which is very fun they do some fun stuff with intertitles in this movie in addition to that and the paintings there's like there's like a scene where um her and her age-appropriate boy uh go skiing off a ramp and then there is this card that's that flies from the background it goes wee Uh, and it, so it animates toward the screen in a way that's like suggesting the motion, which I thought was was neat. Yeah, like that. Um, I thought there was some in, in, interesting use of kind of like, uh, I don't know, just like hairstyling. Like in the beginning of the movie, Olive Thomas's character has sort of like very like 1910 style, like Mary Pickford hair, like the, the long curls. Um, and then as she kind of like gets drawn into the the you know the the seedier life of of being a flapper she kind of puts her hair up in a sort of like shorter like more 1920s looking style and then it returns back again because like all these women behaving badly movies they have to kind of return to domesticity at the end Uh, which is this still a thing today i mean true but uh I i just thought that was interesting how it's sort of like her hairstyle changes like reflecting sort of her 
uh, character arc, I guess. Yeah. 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 Not much else to say about that one. It's kind of just like a fun, fun ish, like diverting comedy. It is definitely, I think a, like you said, it's, it's a sign of kind of, you can see how almost outmoded it is when it was released. It's sort of like, Mm -hmm. it feels like a 1910s movie. Whereas like, I feel like a lot of the other movies that we watched from this year feel distinct from the 1910s stuff that we've watched. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like they're yeah. really trying a lot of new things. Whereas this one is like, Oh, it's one of these again. Right. Yeah. I guess the other, the one other connection that we could make about this movie is that, um, uh, you know, it's not really clear where cultures come from. You can't really come up with like a, a super compact and easy way of describing that. But flapper flapper culture is something that like basically only exists in the 1920s mm-hmm. it's like from around the time this movie came out until the stock market crash in 1929 yeah. and like yeah, exactly that, 10 that years. is like yeah the era of like excess and opulence and at least what i was reading about flappers really sees it as another response to world war one mm. of yeah. um of these people kind of embracing hedonism and and sex and drinking in, in in speakeasies as as a response to you know the way the world just fell apart a few years earlier yeah it's like we're all gonna die anyway we might as well enjoy ourselves yeah yeah <laughs> um but yeah uh this movie doesn't really talk too much about flappers I'm, I'm i'm interested to see if there is a movie that like involves the culture of flappers a bit more um directly mm. yeah um but we will we'll find out. I guess so. Maybe in our next episode, probably not. Nineteen twenty one. I guess that'll do it. Uh, Glenn, do you have a favorite from this from this year? If we're talking features, probably probably Caligari. I think that overall just kind of like holds together the best, and it feels it feels really unique in terms of like what movie I think I genuinely like just enjoyed the most. I think it was High and Dizzy. Like I really liked High and Dizzy a lot. Yeah. Um, I like Ty and Dizzy a lot too. Uh, I think that honestly, like I, I like Caligari a lot. I think Caligari is awesome, but I found Zorro so infectiously fun. Um, yeah, I think you could yeah. show anybody Mark of Zorro and, uh, they, they would have a great time watching that movie. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I certainly did. So I, I'll, I'll make Mark of Zorro my favorite. It's a fun one. Uh, and I guess that'll about wrap it up for this year. Yeah. Um, back, we're back to these sequential numbers. No more wrap up episode. No more episode. Now we're on to 1921 next year. Uh, we haven't fully hashed out the list, but we're gonna be we're gonna be doing the kid. We're gonna be doing the Phantom Carriage. Uh, gonna get some Murnau in there. Uh, Gotta get that but, Murnau but in there. You'll. Uh, You'll you'll see you'll see when it comes out in two weeks. This this show called One Week One Year. <laughs> now every two weeks. Now every two weeks. <laughs> Give us lots of money if you want. Uh, if you want us to do it every week. There you go. Easy solution. Because we got we got other things going on in our lives. Anyway, uh, that'll do it for this week. Uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, uh, I'm glad you're, you're getting to see what, what we're talking about on screen. That's always a plus. If you want to, this is designed to be able to be listened or watched. So, 
Uh, you can always find us on your podcast app of choice. A lot of people like listening to podcasts on Spotify for some reason. Uh, people talk to me. They're like, is it on Spotify? Uh, I mean, yes, it, it is. is. Yeah. And uh, follow us on our Instagram and I don't know, Twitter is probably not <laughs> not much of a thing anymore, but whatever. Uh, yeah, still there, we, we do have a Twitter. Uh, as much as I welcome the imminent end of that website. <laughs> Until that website breaks completely. <laughs> then we will still post. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, thanks a lot for listening. And uh, Glenn, I'll see you next year. See you next year.